Before uh, I launch into today, um, I was debating on whether to show those silly Jesus videos. Do you want to see them? Oh, man, this is like two for two. I don't have it today. Um, Actually, I have it with me, but it was hard for me to gauge, like, are they getting it? Are they offended by it? Do they think it's lame? You know, and so for the nine o'clock service, I just said, forget it, you know, and and I can't, like, favor you guys and show it at the 11 o'clock service, right? So see you next Sunday. But what I did want to do, though, today before we launch into this, uh, into the, into this sermon is I, I want to hear you guys. I've had some conversation with a hand, handful of folks. What's this sermon series doing to you? Well, what kinds of thoughts are going through your mind, you know? Please, no longer than five, ten seconds or so. But words or phrases, like as, as a Christian, or maybe even as someone who's seeking and, and, and looking into Christianity, like what are you hearing and what are you, what are you thinking through? I hear from like three or four people and then, and then I have lots of things to talk about today, so we've got to, got to go in there. So anybody want to just kind of? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. Just go ahead and just say it. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, he said he's hearing something that he wants, but wrestling with that whole thing of how do I get this? How do I, how do I, yeah, how do I get this to a point where it impacts my life? Okay. Anybody else? <laughs> Amy, did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty deep. Now, can I ask you, like, how early are we talking about when you say early? Ten years ago, okay. Oh, we had Amy, Amy Schultz back there say, I wish I heard it when I was five. And I'm going, five years old, you know. <laughs> At five, I was like, if I could just catch a ball without dropping it, I knew that I was okay, you know. I'm like, you know. <laughs> so it might have been a little too much for me. Not for you, though, Amy, but for me, it might have been a little too much. Okay, a couple more people. Come on, be honest. What, what, what's like, what are you asking? What's going through your mind? Really? Oh, brother, you just encouraged me today. Really? Yeah. 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 Wow. I just got to ask, does anybody share... His sentiment. Raise your hands. Okay. All right. All right. I might offend you today. I might offend you today. Bring it on. Okay. All right. This is so encouraging. So I love this church. So I love you guys. I mean, what kind of pastor has, you know, this is awesome. Michael, did you hear that? Wow. And I'm not worried about people being offended and walking out. Trust me, today you're going to be a bit stretched because I threw it out there. And today I think you're going to be stretched. What do you think, Michael? Yeah? Yep, definitely today. Okay, one more person. Thank you, by the way. That was huge. One more person. Anybody else? Oh, come on. I know you want to speak up. I know you want to say something. The rest of the people. I feel like I'm learning about Jesus that I never I hear you. I hear you. And I'm going to try really, really hard for the next few Sundays to, you know. I mean, for those of you guys that have become in a new community, you know, the sermon, couple sermons where I'll talk about what was essentially the central message of Jesus, which was the kingdom. When I go off on the whole, Jesus didn't die for you just to go to heaven. I'm sorry. He didn't. And completely throw you off and going, why? Why did he die for me? What did he do all this for? Well, Hopefully we could answer some of those things. Hopefully we could answer some of those things. Well, you guys have really, you know, today actually uh, uh, one person uh, said, three words, Peter, lunatic, liar, or Lord. Bam. That's what I think of. And of course I had to ask, I'm like, are you like from Northwestern or something? Because only, you know, students from Northwestern would say stuff like that, right? Because <laughs> they're taking notes and meticulous notes and paying attention. Um, lunatic, liar, Lord. 
See, here's what we essentially have to wrestle with. And, and, and you mentioned this in terms of being offended. Look, if you really hear what Jesus is saying, there's only three responses. You're either saying, he's crazy. He thinks he's God. C.S. Lewis, right? He thinks, he thinks he's God. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. At which point, you need to fear him. Run, run away. Or he's a liar. All the stuff that he said, he knew he wasn't God. And he, he made people believe that he was God, even to the point of giving their lives for him. And he knew it. And yet, he let them believe it. He's a liar. That means he's wicked. Wicked. So hate him. Or he's who he said he was. Which point you got to fall down and worship him. There is no in between. He's not, a, he's not a good teacher. He's not a good moral example. He came and said, I'm God. And if you believe that and embrace that, oh boy, it changes everything. I'm going to talk about one of the ways in which that's the case. Well, I am so encouraged, man. That was, I should do this every sermon series. Like, just to hear from you guys, you know. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. Because what we're doing today, actually, is we are continuing to look at John chapter 2, okay? And we're going to look at this very familiar passage of Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus clearing the temple. Um, If you're all there, everybody there, John chapter 2, look up. Because I need to give you guys a background before we launch into this thing. You ready? Okay, here it is. If you do not understand John chapter 2 verses uh, 12 to 22 that we're going to look at. You can't understand John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Hear me, hear me. You cannot understand John chapter 12, 22 until you understand verses 1 to 12. What do I mean? The gospel writer John intentionally put these two stories together. He intentionally put Jesus changing the, wa- uh, changing the wine, water into wine at, at first, and then he intentionally put this Jesus cleansing the temple right back to back. You cannot understand one without the other. And I'm going to talk about what that means, okay? They are put back to back together because John is painting a portrait of Jesus. Now, here's why it's important, because we're going to get into practically. We don't see these two Jesuses as being the same Jesus, we love the Jesus of last week. We're not offended by that. Jesus turns water into wine. He fills my table. He's the lover of my soul. He's my bridegroom. He loves me like that. I love it. I love it. Oh, boy. But then Jesus turns around and goes, Whoop. get it out of here. Get that out of here. I'm God. I have the authority to do this. He fills your table in John chapter 2 at the wedding. He clears your table in John chapter 2 at the temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus is, is behind the scenes. He's gentle. He's quiet working. In, John, in Jesus at the temple, he intrudes. He intervenes. He forces his way. At the wedding, he brings joy. He brings celebration. At the temple, weeping, gnashing of teeth. At the wedding, it's the Jesus that provides, answers our prayers, gives what we asked, comes through at the 11th hour at the temple. He doesn't answer your prayers. He brings hard stuff into your life. And he doesn't tell you why. And John is saying, they're both Jesus. And until you see that they're both Jesus, they're not two different Jesuses. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't know what he's doing. No, Jesus is... It's two different ways of doing the same thing. He's revealing who he is. He's telling us what he's about. And he's showing us what he offers. Are you tracking so far? Look, it doesn't get any more practical than this. Do you know why? Because if you've been a Christian for a little bit or long, you will soon realize that we experience both. We experience Jesus at the wedding. At the, at the wedding. He fills our table. He answers your prayers. You got the relationship. Got the job. Get into the school. Life is great. Full of joy. And then, in our Christian lives, we get hard times, suffering, unanswered prayers, discomfort. This song that we sing, sounds great, right? Melody. Blessed be your name. Do you realize what you're saying? Blessed be your name in the land that's plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Love that Christian life. But blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Do I walk through the wilderness? Jesus at the wedding. Jesus in the temple. Same Jesus. 
Blessed be your name when the sun si- when the sun's shining down on me. Whew, when the world's all as it should be. Jesus loved that. But blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering when there's pain in the offering. And we go, I don't like that, Jesus. I don't like that Christianity. Jesus comes and says, I'm the same God. Unless you see that I'm the same Jesus, your life won't make sense. Look, do you know how many Christians I've talked to who walked away from the faith? Because they get to this place where they say, see Jesus in the temple, and they're like, "Uh uh-uh. Nope. At the wedding, I could handle that, but the temple, Jesus... You know how many people that I've talked to have walked away from the faith because they can't reconcile the Jesus who fills the table, but also the Jesus who overturns it. Some of you are there today. Some of you are there today. You're in that season of Jesus overturning your tables, of hard times, of suffering, of prayers not being answered, of doors closing. You're going, I don't know about this. Jesus comes and says, it's still me. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Let's look at this passage more carefully. Let's look at both of the passages, actually, and see how it is that we see both Jesuses. Well, first and foremost, Jesus at the wedding. Jesus at the wedding. Jesus shows who he is. He shows his authority. He shows his authority. How does he do it? It's a little quiet. It's a little muted. Okay? But you remember when Mary, his mother, goes to him and says, they've run out of wine. Will you do something? And Jesus goes, my time hasn't come. He's essentially saying, my hour, hour of crucifixion, hour of dying for the sins of the world has not come yet. One of what Jesus is saying to Mary is, I'm not a God on a leash. I'm not a God that's about your timetable, your programs. I'm not a God who's for, who, whose hand can be forced to do what you want me to, Mary. I'm God. Now, if you're sitting there going, who would talk to Jesus like that? Who would talk to God like that? Come on, come on. How many times have you heard Jesus say, you can't force my hand, I'm God. I'm not a God on a leash. I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm not going to be tantrumed into doing stuff for you. But then Jesus shows his authority. How? He changes water into wine. We don't struggle with that, though. Why? Because it's good. Abundance, filling, good things. Like that about Jesus. I can do with Jesus. And the temple, though, oh, boy. Jesus shows his authority. He also shows who he is. But then it's not muted. It's not cryptic. It's in your face. Now, do you know why this passage is so... uh, uh, Did we read the passage, by the way? (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm a terrible preacher. Open your Bibles with me. You're going, what are you talking about? John chapter 2, verses 12. Let's read together. Well, with all that set up now, there should be major anticipation, right? Like, what's going on? What's going to happen? Look at John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, that's the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove off from the temple area both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Everybody look up here for a second. I read through the, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of this, and I was a little discouraged or disturbed because he translated this as cord of leather or whip made out of leather, which is a terrible translation because literally the Greek word there is rushes or straw that was used for animal bedding. Think. In other words, Jesus goes in and he picks up a bunch of straws, animal bedding, puts them together, makes a whip. Oh boy, that's a dangerous whip, isn't it? He started flailing this thing around. And yet, people flee. And yet, people are awed. And yet, there's fear and reverence. So this image of Jesus, eyes bulging, you know, hair sticking up, scary Jesus with the whip that's going to, first of all, you weren't allowed to enter the temple with the weapon, and whips were considered weapons at the time. So what's going on here? How is it that the people respond the way they do with Jesus holding a whip made out of straws? You know what's going on? 
they're actually, it's a miracle in and of itself. How so? They're inherently feeling instinctively, this guy is different. They're instinctively, inherently feeling something's going on. We don't know quite what it is, but he clearly has the authority to do this. How do we know? Verse 18, they come right on and say, look, his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, their question is, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Their question is, you're somebody. You're somebody. And where's that authority coming from? Give us an explanation. Who are you? What are you? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Cryptic language again. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Authority of Jesus at the wedding. Authority of Jesus in the temple. How? He appears and instinctively. The people respond the way Peter responded in Luke chapter 5. When Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. He throws a net, catches a large number of fish, brings it in. And all of a sudden, he looks at Jesus and realizes he's God. He falls prostrate and says, get away from me, Lord. People in the temple are looking at Jesus and saying, what's going on? Tell us, where do you get the authority to do this? Practical application. You ready? This is huge. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't go in temple going, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to overturn all the tables, okay? I'm going to drive you money changers out. I'm going to turn all this upside down. And I'll tell you why. He gives a reason why. And then he does it. To which you and I would struggle less too emotionally because some of us go, I don't like that, Jesus. I don't like that. Uncomfortable, a little uncomfortable. Whips, driving people out, turning tables, mad. I don't know if I like that, Jesus. Peter, tell me why. Why did Jesus do that, by the way? Can you tell me why? I can't, and I don't want to. Why? Because Jesus doesn't do it that way. The people didn't get it that way. Jesus comes in, overturns table. What are you doing? I have the authority. Overturns table. Why are you doing it? I have the authority. Overturns money changes, kicks them out, says, what are you doing? Jesus says, I have the authority. I'm God. How is this practically relevant? It's not too long before we in our Christian lives experience this Jesus, isn't it? He comes into our lives and he does overturn tables. He comes into our lives. He drives things out. He comes into our lives and he takes things out. He subtracts things. He comes into our lives and he brings hard things, harsh things. And the thing is, he doesn't tell us why. And the only thing that we sense from him is he says, I'm God. I have the authority to do this. But I don't like that. Tell me why. Tell me why you're doing this, and then I'll believe. Tell me why you're doing this, then I'll accept it. Tell me why you're doing this, then I can respond. Jesus doesn't. He may after. And sometimes he tells us why after. But in the middle of it, Jesus simply says, I'm God. I have the authority to do this. Has that ever happened to you? Is this disturbing? Is this disturbing? It is until you realize, look through the Bible, and I see a guy like Job. Remember Job? The Bible says in in Job chapter 1 that he was the greatest man of all the East. He had wealth. He had children. He had everything. And on top of that, get this, he was godly. He loved God. He followed God. So those of us that are thinking simple theology, if I follow God, if I love God, no bad things will come into my life. Sorry. Bible says no. And here's the powerful thing. You ready? Job goes to God and says, tell me why. If you tell me why, I can accept it. Tell me why. If you tell me why, I could could go through it and I'll be obedient. And what does God do? Job chapter 38 on, the the rest of the Bible, right? You know how it begins? Job chapter 38 verse 1, when God just speaks, right? It says, verse 1, and God spoke out of the storm. It's never a good thing when God speaks out of the storm. You know what God says? Job says, tell me why. Then I, God says, Job, can I ask you a question? When I laid the foundations of the earth, did the earth ask you for permission? How wide? How deep? 
Job, let me ask you a question. Before the sun rises, does the sun go, Job, and arise now? Before the sun sets, Job, does the sun come and saying, is it okay for me to set now? Are you feeling the offense? Are you feeling the offense? Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? And God comes along, and God doesn't give Job an answer. God just simply says those things. And at the end, Job says, I see. To which I'm going, you see what? (laughs) Job, he didn't answer your question. He didn't give you what you wanted. What do you mean you see? And the Bible says, Job says, I see. And what he's essentially saying is, I see that you're God. And I'm not. I see that you have the authority to do this, and I don't. I see that you have the right to do this, and I don't. And here's the critical spiritual lesson. Here, you need to trust and obey God simply because he says so before you know why. It will stifle your Christian life, your spiritual life, if you are not willing to be at that place where you're saying, I will obey, I will trust without knowing why. You may tell me why later, you may show me why later, but for now, you're overturning my tables, you're subtracting things, but God, I will obey simply because you're God. We've been asking the question why from the very beginning of time. Remember the Garden of Eden? God essentially gives man and woman one command, one command, one. And he doesn't tell them why. He doesn't tell them why. The serpent comes along and says, why? Man and woman say, we actually don't know why. He just told us. Serpent says, well, that's stupid. You got to know why. Why would you do it if you don't know why? To which men and women then said, he's really smart. He's exactly right. Why should we obey? Why should we do what he says? Unless we know why. And they took and ate of the fruit. And Bible scholars have debated for centuries. What was it about that command? What was it about that one thing? What was it about the fruit? And the, real, and, the, and the realization we have to come to is this. God gives a command for no other reason than the most important one, which is obey because I'm God. And you're not. Because if you come to a place where you say, I'll obey as long as I know. I'll obey as long as it makes sense. God comes and says, then you're not really obeying me for me. You're using me. You're using me. If you're sitting there going, my brain hurts because you're not making any sense. What the heck are you talking about? Let me put it this way. I was watching Talladega Nights a couple of nights ago. Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Deep spiritual truth, you know. <laughs> Deep spiritual truth. For those of you that didn't watch it, don't worry. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't miss much. Except his prayers to baby Jesus, which I find pretty humorous, and I might show it. There's something that happens in that movie that happens in so, so often television shows and film, and the reason why they keep doing it is because you and I connect with it at a soul level. You know what it is? It's cheesy, but here it is. Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell's character, becomes this NASCAR superstar, right? He makes all of this money, and while he's making all of this money and becoming famous, he sees a woman in the stands, and she's like, woohoo! And he's like, wow, that's pretty cool! And so they get married. She essentially marries him for his money, for his fame. Well, Ricky Bobby goes through some hard times. He loses his, his, his deal with the, with, with, with the, I don't know NASCAR. I'm not from the South. I'm just, he, he loses his corporate sponsors, okay? Basically, they drop him, and Will Ferrell goes from being a superstar NASCAR driver to delivering pizza. You know what his wife does? His wife essentially what? Leaves him for his best friend. And there's a scene where she basically says, but you're, you're who are you now? What, what do you have? I'm with your friend over here. And Will Ferrell goes, I need you now more than ever. I, I, I've lost everything. I need you now more than ever. And of course she doesn't. Now, silly movie. But you watch a scene like that, and there's something in you, something in me that feels violated. We sit there and we go, how can she do that? And she love him for him? Love him for his money? And we put ourselves in that situation where we meet somebody, head over heels for somebody, and they meet us. 
And we set a wedding date and everything. But two, three months before the wedding date, we lose our jobs. We lose everything that we have. And in that moment of utter desperation, we go to that person and saying, I need you now more than ever. I need comfort. And that person looks at us and says, we're done. (laughs) What do you mean we're done? And you realize that that person was never attracted to you. That person never loved you. They loved you for your money. They loved you for what you could bring. They loved you for what you gave. And you and I feel a sense of violence and outrage in our souls that says, that's wrong. Do you know what God is saying when he says, I need you simply to obey because I'm God. And we say, if it makes sense, if it connects to my plans, if it actually lines up with what I'm wanting to do, my plans, my goals, does it, does it work out? You know what we're saying to God? God, it's not you. It's my goals. God, it was never about you. It's my plans. How many times have we done that? And we feel a sense of outrage, betrayal in our souls. If somebody comes to look, just the thought of my wife, right? This is a terrible example because I can't go. My wife goes, I married you for your money. It's clearly <laughs> a terrible example. The thought of my wife coming in my most deepest need and to find out she never loved me for me, but what I could do and bring and give. When God comes to us and he throws our tables and overturns things, and he says, trust me, I need you to trust me to know that I'm God. And when we say, God, not now, not because of that, what we're essentially saying to God is, God, I never loved you for you. I never loved you for you. I loved you for what you brought, what you could give, what you could bring. And now that those things aren't in my life, bye, I'm done. And if you and I feel a sense of betrayal and outrage in our souls, is it too far-fetched for us to expect that God would say, ah, and then when he brings things into our lives, it's accepted because I'm God. Maybe the only reason, the only reason why God does it is the most important one, which is that you and I learn to love him for him. You love God like that. You want it, don't you? You want it. I want it. Can we love God for who he is? And for some of us, they're really wrestling because we're going through some hard things. And God, why are you overturning my table? And we're going, look, our logic is, God, I'm angry. Because you're great and big enough that you can fix this. But you're also angry that you can't figure God out. You can't have it both ways. Did you follow? Let me put it this way. If you can totally understand God, would he be worth totally obeying? If you can totally understand God and what he's doing, because the only way God, I'll find contentment. It's the only way that I'll be able to understand. Would that kind of God be worth totally obeying? God who's just like you, who's just like me. Are you feeling the offense? Because if you're really honest this morning and you're saying, trust him like that, God comes and says, trust me. It's moments like this when I could hear a pin drop in this room. I'm wondering what in the world is going through your heads, your minds. Here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Because to me, this is the crux of the Christian life and the challenge for us today. How do we wrestle with this God who comes along and says, I have the right and the authority to do this. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? What else does Jesus do in this passage? 
he, I think, also reveals to us what he came for and what he came to do. And it's this whole passage and this whole imagery of Jesus driving the money changers and driving the people selling the animals out. Remember how the wedding reminded Jesus of his death. As Jesus is sitting there drinking the wine, sipping the wine, he's thinking about his blood that's going to be shed for humanity. He's thinking about the blood that's going to be shed for you and me. As he's drinking the wine, he's thinking of his death, and as a result, he's thinking of you and me. In this passage in the temple, I think Jesus is doing the same thing. I think he's thinking of you, and he's thinking of me. He's thinking of his death on the cross. And you're going, where the heck do you find that? What does Jesus see when he walks into the temple? Along with the money changers and sellers, most important thing, Jesus sees the animals for sacrifice. Jesus sees the cattle, the sheep, the lamb, and the doves. Now, what set Jesus off? There's been a number of theories. Here's one I heard. There have been theories about how Jesus, what she set Jesus off was that there was extortion going on. It was a den of robbers. There were people who were, you know, stealing money from the poor. And so as a result, Jesus was outraged. No, sorry. You can't pull out an entire social justice sermon out of this, okay? There were good reasons why there were taxes levied, so on and so forth. So that's not the reason why Jesus got mad. Why did Jesus get mad? Let me paint the picture for you. By this time, Jews are all over the world, all over the world, okay? This is the Passover, Passover. So there are millions of Jews that are flooding into Jerusalem on the day of Passover. Some scholars say 2.5 million people at one time would have flooded into Jerusalem. And here's what it would have looked like. You ready? At the corner over here were a group of people who changed money. Why? Jews at this time lived all over the world. And so they held foreign currency. So when they came into Jerusalem, they needed to change their money in order to, secondly, purchase the sacrifice, animals for sacrifice. In other words... You had the choice if you live, let's say, far in Europe somewhere, okay, going to Jerusalem saying, honey, grab the sheep, grab the lamb. We're going to go on this month-long journey into Jerusalem. It's going to be a little tricky, you know, because they make a mess and we got to feed them so on and so forth, but we got to take them, okay? Not very practical. Not only that, but in the temple, it was a law that you had to bring an unblemished animal according to the Old Testament. So if you brought an animal with one eye, you know, or the nose back here or something like that or something that was limping, the priest would go, sorry, can't accept it. You're going, but came all the way from Spain. I brought all from Spain. What am I supposed to do? You can't accept it. So what happened was there was a huge market for selling animals. But here's what happened. Listen, pay attention. Jesus comes in. And it's noisy. People are bartering. People are all. The guy would say, hey, I'm from Spain. Here's some money. Exchange it. Got it. Thank you. Walk over here. Hey, give me that lamb so I can have my sins atoned for. Here it is. He gets the lamb. Takes a few steps. Goes to the priest and says, here's the lamb for my sins. He says, wait a minute. Another guy comes and says, here's the lamb for my sins. Wait a minute. Here's another guy for lamb. There's 10 people. Priest says, everybody, bow, bow your heads, bow heads, kill the lambs, kill the lambs. Your sins are atoned for, sins are atoned for. And they walked away. Jesus walks in and looks at that scene and says, they don't get it, God. They don't know what it means. They don't know what I'm about to do for them. They're not meditating. They're not reflecting. They're not. God, it's mechanical. It's formality. It's get it done. I'm out of here. And Jesus looks at the Old Testament and says, this is the most inspired all. You're supposed to be broken and lifted up. You're supposed to look at that and go, that's me. That should be me. That should be my sins. I don't love God as I should. I don't love my neighbor as I should. That should be me. To which the priest says, the sin is atoned for. And you break down. You kneel. And you spend time with God in reflection and meditation. And you're saying, God, I understand. I get it. I adore you and walk away. And yet what Jesus sees is, animal, got it. Done, see you. Animal, got it, done, see you. And it breaks his heart.
you know why this is so huge for me? Because my life oftentimes looks like that marketplace. There's no time for reflection of the cross. There's no time for meditation of his sacrifice. There's no engagement in my heart and soul to what he did being my substitute. Many times my life is, I'm busy, God. My schedule is packed. I'm in. I'm out. My busy, God. I've got ministry to do. I'm a leader. I've got people to take care of. I'm in. I'm out. I'm in. I'm out. And God says, listen, Jesus comes and says, get it out of here. Get that out of here, Peter. Get that out. I didn't die so you could run programs. I didn't die for you so that you could, you could be busy with religious activities. I didn't give of my life for you so that you can go on and do your thing in a mechanical, ritualistic way. Think, engage, meditate. Is this speaking to anybody? We are entering into a season of Lent where literally 40 days are marked aside for us to do just that and friends and friends and friends Jesus is saying what will you do the very thing that I gave you for fellowship and communion with me will you just walk in formality marketplace checklist done God I'm out or will you let it melt your heart we let it cause your heart to worship I have a confession to make, and that is, I'm those people in the marketplace. I'm just being honest with you guys. I was talking with, the, uh, with, the, with one of our church members during the week, and he said, honestly, he's like, Peter, do you know how long it's been since the truth of the cross and what it's done has really hit me to the core? And I said, man, you're ta- you, that's me. And I could, Jesus died for me, huh? He died for my sins, huh? But here's how I know it hasn't melted my heart. Here's how I know it's become mechanical formality. Here's how I know my life shows it. What do I mean? The cross and what Jesus did literally is at the foundation of every single one of our issues and problems. Everyone. You like everyone? Every one of them. Let me give you some examples. There's some of us in this room who struggle with forgiveness. You know that that is the barrier to your spiritual life and is choking the life right out of you. And you're saying, I can't forgive. I've been to counseling. I can't forgive. Counseling is good, but may I challenge you, cross, the cross, the cross. Why? Do you know what the cross says? If you really think about it, not mechanical, the cross says this. The cross says that Jesus Christ came and died for evil, sin, and injustice once and for all. And a day will come when he will make all evil and all injustice right. He will put everything to right. Do you know why that frees you to forgive? Because some of us can't forgive because we look at that person and say, if I forgive, I'm just giving them license to do it again. What if they do it again? And Jesus says, be free from that because there will come a day when everything will be put to rights and all will answer to God. You don't have to be the executioner. You don't have to be the person that says, they will forgive and I will make them. God says, the cross, the cross, the cross. Here's how the cross also frees us to forgive. One of the reasons why we have a difficult time forgiving, believe it or not, is because we fail to see sin in our own lives. We, we go, I will judge you. I have the standard on you. And I, if we just would be able to look at the cross and go, we're just like them in our sins, but we're also just like them and they were eternally loved. And God says, I love you just like that. Suffering. We have a hard time, and our spiritual lives are being suffocated because of suffering. Suffering around us, suffering in the world. And you're saying, if God is good, and the questions go on and on and on. Listen, the Bible doesn't give simple, rational explanations for why suffering is in the world, but the Bible does a clear job of saying this God is the only God in His Son of all religions who suffered with us and who suffered for us. And he's got scars for all of eternity to prove it. 
You can accuse God of saying, why God? And he may have very good reasons that we might not know. But Christianity says, you can't accuse this God of being indifferent. He suffered for us. For some of us, our self-esteem is like this. We look at ourselves like, I'm a complete failure. I'm an utter failure. Why would anybody care about me? Why would anybody love me? And the cross says, do you realize how valuable you are? Do you realize how much worth is in you? Listen, I know some of you guys are like, don't want to hear it, don't want to hear it. My family, what they've done. Listen, you, the cross, the cross. And for me, the spiritual lesson came alive while watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy this week. Don't judge me. You don't know me, okay? (laughs) It's my favorite line in this church. Don't judge me. You don't know me, okay? Don't be like Grey's Anatomy. That means he's... No, no. There's beauty and truth in art. Here's why Grey's Anatomy speaks so powerfully to me. to say I was going to say I identify with Meredith I identify with Meredith okay I identify with the main character no listen I mean totally serious why this power listen you know why I say that look look this past week Meredith was the main character who is a, a gifted surgeon she's lived her entire life to please her mother hello her entire life and she's longed her entire life for her mother to look at her and say, Meredith, you are somebody. And last week's episode ends with her mother looking at Meredith and saying, you are ordinary. And I sat there and <laughs> Do you know why? I'll be serious for a moment. My entire life, even now, my entire life, I'm driven driven in everything I do because I don't want to be ordinary. And my entire life, my struggle has been to hear mentors, my parents, people say to me, you're not ordinary. But I have to come to grips with the fact that there's one person in the entire universe who for all of eternity will never look at me and say, you're ordinary. And I serve a God who every time he looks at me says, you will never be ordinary. Why do you work so hard for what you do? Why do you study? Why do you work 120 hours? Why do you long for that person's approval? Why? Why are you insecure? Why do you struggle with self? Why? 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 The cross says, I did this for you. But you and I don't have time to meditate on that. We don't have energy. We're in the marketplace. I did my thing, God. I'm out. I did my thing. After today's service, I had an Asian guy, brother, come up to me, crying, and he said this. All my life, I've yearned for my parents to say, we accept you just the way you are. Just the way you are. Don't need to do this, that, just the way. And he says, I've never heard it from them. And he broke down as I was praying for him. For him to realize that his heavenly father says, 
I love you just the way you are. Let me wrap this up. This whole temple thing, what is this about? Jesus saying, destroy it, in three days I will raise it up again. If you were last week, I said last week, that Christianity is not about bunch of rules, regulations we adhere to, a bunch of doctrinal statements that we sign on and agree, but that it's a feast. It's like drinking wine. It's an experiential, sensory experience. And if you didn't get it, I paid a huge cost. I drank two caramel macchiatos, like span of like five seconds each. I went home. I was floored for like the whole night, okay? And I was going, the sacrifice I'll do for that church. God, they don't get it, God. My self-pity, Messiah complex, sorry, I'd go there once in a while. What is that all about? How do we do that? How do we, this God, this God who says, I have authority to do this. This God who says, I did that for you. How do we experience him? How is it even possible? The temple, what do I mean? In the very beginning, when God had everything just the way he wanted, in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was essentially a temple, a sanctuary. The Garden of Eden essentially was what temples was to replicate. That is, temple was that place where humanity connected with God, where man walked with God, where the holy fellowship with God, sanctum, sanctuary. It was that place where you and I walked with God. His glory was all around us, not parts and pieces. Glory was all around us. You're going, what was that like? Here's what it was like. Can you imagine living your life for the rest of your life without feeling fear, insecurity? Wondering, am I accepted? Wondering, God, am I going to be okay? Can you imagine the rest of your life knowing that you're fully and unconditionally loved, accepted, and worthy and valued? Knowing the entire rest of your life that you can be exactly who you are and everybody knows you exactly who you are. A to Z, good and bad, everything about you. And they say, I love you just the way you are. That's what it was like in the garden. Until our parents decided that instead of loving them, Loving God, they were going to use God. They said, God, we'll serve you if it makes sense. We'll obey if it makes sense. But if it doesn't, we won't. And God did to them exactly what God, you and I would do. God expelled them from the garden. When God expelled them from the garden, Genesis 3.24 says this, God put a cherubim with flaming swords to guard the easternmost side, easternmost side of the garden. Why is this significant? Because if you want to look around the world today and go, how do you describe our life? Our, descri- our life can be described this way. We live life east of the Garden of Eden. It's brokenness. It's strife. It's striving. It's insecurity. It's fear. It's anxiety. It's wearing masks. It's rebellion against God. It's emptiness. And here's the powerful thing. You ready? God says, I'm not going to let you be. Even though you used me and rejected me, I'm not going to, I'm going to restore this relationship so that there will be glory all around. And God says, Israelites, build a tabernacle. Eventually, Israelites, build a temple. You know what God did? In this tabernacle and temple, God set up a veil, a thick veil. And this veil separated the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt with everything else. And did you know that on this veil that separated the holy of holies from everything else was an embroidered drawing of plants and a garden. So that every time the high priest walked in, he would look at the veil and be reminded, we live in the east side of the garden. And we can't know God. We can't approach God. And directly in front of the veil were two cherubims, figures, representative of, again, the east side of the garden. And once a year, once a year, the high priest, to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel so they could reconnect with God, would go under the cherubim, under the sword, to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel so they can say, we can now come into the presence of God. And the Bible says, Mark chapter 15, when Jesus died, this veil that symbolized the easternmost part of the garden. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is it significant? Because the top to bottom says that God initiated this re-entry. And that veil was torn in two. And Jesus breathed this last and says, I am finished. Finished with what? Because of what Jesus did. You and I don't have to just know God, about God from a distance. You and I just don't have to know about who he is. But you and I could enter in, come in, dine, 
fellowship, reconnect. And God says, in me, my glory that was once away, my glory that was only partial, now will come flooding into your very being. And you can experience healing. You can experience knowledge of me. You can experience restoration. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be insecure. You don't have to run anymore. That's why Peter says we are now partakers of that glory. He did that for you. He did that for you. He loved you. Christian leaders, don't you dare make your life a marketplace. He says, get it out. Get it out of here. For those of you that are non-Christian, you're seeking, searching, listen. Here's the thing about Jesus you need to know that I'm going to tease more at the end. He's not an errand boy. He's not a secretary. At the wedding, he's a guest. In the temple, he's the host. If you invite him in into your life, his glory will come flooding in and he will do amazing things, but he's going to rearrange your furniture. Because he's God. Because he's God. Bow your heads with me. Instead of being in a rush and a hurry to just get out of here and Move on to the next thing that we have planned. And though it's only for just a couple minutes, can I invite you? Just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Who is this Jesus? Who is it's Jesus. Has he come and overturned your table? Do you trust him? Are you reflecting? Are you meditating? Are you thinking? Do you see the cross? loved you like that. As the worship team leads us, enter in, enter in. We can now. He has made the way. He has made the way. Enter in.